The word of the Lord from Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So all will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. If you haven't already, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, if you're new to Redeemer, you are joining us in the midst of our series as we're working our way through the book of Matthew. And as you're turning to today's passage, I need to go ahead and confess right up front that it took a substantial degree of self-control to refrain from titling today's sermon, Squirrel! Why? Because at first glance, it feels like a squirrel got into some bad sugar and is just careening all over the place here. I mean, we have, we have broods of vipers, we have good trees and bad trees, and Jonah and Solomon and the Queen of the South make an appearance, and then there's a demon in the desert, and he doesn't like house cleaning, and so he brings more demons. And then Jesus seems a little harsh with like, what is going on in this passage? Well, trusting that Matthew is not, in fact, a meth-addled squirrel, I think if we, with a little work... Meth adult squirrel, who had that on your sermon bingo card today? I think with a little work on our part, we will see that there is actually a beautiful, Christ-exalting, hope-giving thread that runs through this passage. And to help us see that, we have to remember that the Gospels are not, strictly speaking, biographies. And by that, I certainly do not mean that they are false, but that they are written to do more than just tell us this chronological series of events in Jesus' life. They are written to help us see clearly who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish and to do, which is certainly what Matthew has been doing throughout his gospel. Well, what do I mean? Well, consider what Matthew has already unfolded for us up until this point. He sets out to help the reader and us to understand 
that Jesus is God's Messiah. He is the anointed one who is the fulfillment of God's promises. You know, through the teaching and preaching first of John the Baptist and then Jesus himself, we begin to hear the kingdom message and to see the kingdom structure. And that was, we saw that especially in chapters 4 through 7, including the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, this is what my kingdom is like. And this is what it's going to be. And if you are citizens of it, you should pursue and desire these things. Then Matthew spent a couple of chapters letting us see repeated demonstrations of Jesus' power, kind of affirming this message. We see healings. We see exorcisms of many demons. And then he turns his attention to Jesus' focus on his disciples and the, the mission on which he sends them. However, over the last couple of chapters, which for us has been the last few weeks, there's been a little bit of a turn in the focus as now we start to look at these different kinds of doubt and opposition that are arising against Jesus. And this is everyone from people like John the Baptist and those who have seen Jesus' miracles wondering, are you really the promised one? Have you really come to do these things all the way up to his confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees? Now, we have to be honest readers of the text and acknowledge that this opposition hasn't arisen in a vacuum or out of nowhere. It comes in the context of Jesus making increasingly explicit claims to divinity, to being God. You know, by way of a small sampling, we saw, for example, in chapter 9, verse 3, when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. We saw in chapter 11, where he says, the Father has handed all things to me. In chapter 12, he says, I am greater than the temple and Lord of the Sabbath, and just on and on and on. So now, if you're an observant Jew who does not believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, then you would be hard-pressed to come up with a series of more offensive and blasphemous claims than what Jesus is saying here. So it shouldn't surprise us that the, the stridency of the reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees matches Jesus' own escalation of his claims. So much so that we reach the point in chapter 12 that Jamie preached on last week where the Pharisees say, Jesus, you're actually doing this by the power of the devil. And to this, Jesus responds by pointing out to them that not only is their argument ludicrous on its own terms, it is actually they who are in league with the devil. And by making their claims, they have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and placed themselves outside of the kingdom of God. And so it is then that we come to today's passage, which really picks up in the middle of Jesus laying down that gauntlet for them. And this is one of those places where the little paragraph and subject headings in your Bibles don't serve us well because they break up what is meant to be one sort of continuous argument and episode here. So as much as possible, try to ignore those because as you will recall from last week, Jesus has just said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So by Jesus' own terms, there is not a morally neutral ground for us or the Pharisees to occupy here. Just as his claims necessitated a response from them, they also require a response from us. So we have to keep this context in the forefront of our minds as we work through today's passage. Because that's, that's what's brought us to this moment. That's where we are at in this argument, in this part of the passage. You know, as I said, on its own, it may feel like this is just all over the place. But with all of that in mind, I again think we will see a deeply Christ-centered and hopeful thread to which we can cling. And the ultimate point that I, that I hope you will take away from this morning is this. Jesus is who God promised he would be. And whatever opposition may arise in our lives, we must we must cling to him, trusting 
that God's Spirit's presence within us will be revealed in our lives. So to see that, let's consider our first point this morning, the good root. The good root. Look back with me, with me at chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. I want to read that paragraph one more time in whole so that we can break it down together. Remember, Jesus is speaking and continuing the argument that he made just prior to this that we looked at last week. So verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Okay, on the one hand, the thrust of Jesus' argument is pretty straightforward and clear here, right? He's saying that the condition of your heart, the tree, as it were, will be reflected and revealed in your life, in the fruit of it, in your words. And that's important. We want to, to make sure that we remember that, that we keep that in our minds today and, and throughout our lives. On the other hand, however, Jesus kind of nuances and explains this idea in about three different ways, each of which reveals a slightly different facet of what he's trying to get at here. And I think it is worth our time to consider each of them in turn so that we might better understand the connection between our hearts and our lives and the needs we have for them both. So first, Jesus makes the point that the tree and the fruit are inseparably connected. You know, a good tree is going to produce good fruit. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. And that, that ordering is very important because prepare yourselves. I'm about to astound and amaze you that the tree controls the fruit. I know, amazing, right? Profound stuff. But if, if I plant an apple tree, if I tend to that apple tree, if I work it all the time, I tend to the soil, I make sure it gets water and sunlight, I keep the pest away, all those things, you know what I'm going to get? Apples. You know what I'm not going to get? Anything else, it will make apples. If I want oranges or lemons or pears, I need orange or lemon or pear trees. It does not matter how hard I work that apple tree. It will only ever produce apples. And that, that's where I think we can go horribly wrong in this passage because we read the next clause which says, for the tree is known by its fruit. And we think, oh, I just need to work harder on the fruit on the outward reality, and that will fix the tree. When Jesus is saying, no, you need a whole new tree. Now, let me be abundantly clear, and please do not misunderstand. Our fruit matters tremendously because, as Jesus says, that is what people will see of our lives. We should care very, very much about the fruit that our lives produces and what people will see in us but God does not grant that we should know each other's hearts. He does, yes, but he tells us that we will be known by our fruits. He tells us to assess our fruits and to rightly discern the fruits of others. But if we are producing bad fruit, the point is not to try to make some superficial change to the fruit, to just clean up the outside. The point is we need new trees. We need new hearts. And so that's what Jesus wants us to see here is the tree is what controls the fruit. So assess the tree, discern the tree. 
Not only that, second, Jesus also says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that is why he says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? He's telling them that the reason they are saying these evil things is because their hearts are evil. So as Jesus sharpens the analogy here, the tree, of course, represents our hearts, and the fruit represents our mouths and the words we speak. And, oh, well, that starts to feel a little close to home, I imagine. Because what does he say? He says that the words of your mouth are a direct revelation of what dwells in your heart. And as much as we may not want to deal with this, we have to grapple with the fact that Jesus so directly ties the condition of our hearts to the words of our mouths. Because there's both, there's both an in and an out component to that reality. You know, there's an in component, what's coming into our hearts, what's shaping our hearts that we see all throughout Scripture. Consider Proverbs 4, 20 through 23, which says this, My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And this is one of those verses where I think the NIV actually gets verse 23 a little more clearly and states it a little more emphatically because it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now that's a bold claim. Above all else, above everything else you do, guard your heart, because everything you do flows from it. Now, I came of age in a generation where the sermon would now descend against to a screed against those dens of iniquity and sin, like movie theaters and music stores, all those terrible things that are going to wreck your heart. But you know what? The, the older I get, the more I realize that oftentimes those critiques, critiques weren't wrong as often as they were just incomplete. Because you know what? We should. We must take great care about the, the media and the information and the things that we consume and what it does to our souls. God help us all the more so now that it's kind of become an appendage of our bodies, right? It's just right there all the time. Now, young people in the room, I can hear your eyes rolling in the back of your head right now. I get it. You see this old guy standing on the stage screaming at you to get off my lawn, and you think, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and I remember, because even though I have been 80 on the outside since I was five on the inside, there was a time not that long ago that I sat right where you're at, utterly convinced that what I listened to, what I watched, what I did, did not in any way shape me. But it, it does more than you will know for a long, long time. But Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, all those things, they're, they're shaping you. They're designed to shape you. People are paid millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to make sure that they are shaping you. So the question you need to wrestle with is how are they shaping you? Are they shaping you toward or away from Christ-likeness? Now, those of you with a few more years on you, you don't get off so easily here because age does not make you less susceptible to these things. You know what? Just because something is on Facebook or Fox News or NPR or OAN or MSNBC or Twitter or whatever else doesn't make it true either. Those things are shaping you. Now, lest I be guilty of just being a slightly more current version of those pastors I referenced a moment ago, let me say it's not just these things. It's, it's everything that we listen to, that we read, that we watch. It's who we listen to, who speaks into our lives, who is shaping us, who is teaching us, who is forming our hearts. 
And if everything that we do, if every part of our lives is just an outflow of what's in our hearts, which Jesus says that it is, then we better take the greatest of care as to what's coming into them, as to what's shaping them. So that's, that's the inward component of this. I said earlier, there's also an outward one as well. And that brings us to the third way that Jesus makes his point here. And it's interesting, again, that he ties our hearts so closely to our speech in verse 34, but there's a deadly serious reason that he does so. And that's because he goes on to say, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And goodness, if it feels like you're just getting pummeled here, it's, it's okay. I mean, Jesus is punching with a velvet-covered fist. But let's talk about the velvet before we talk about the fist. First, we must, must, must be clear as to what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that we can be saved by our words. Now, you might be thinking, Austin, I'm not stupid. I can read. It says right there, by your words, you will be justified. What gives? Well, remember what Jesus has just told us. Our words reveal what is in our hearts. What he is saying is that on the day of judgment, our words will reveal the state of our hearts. I once heard a pastor say that you could imagine standing before the Lord in judgment with a tape recorder that had been hung around your neck, and if all he did was hold you to your own standard that you had uttered in your life, you wouldn't even be able to live up to that, much less his standards. Now, we don't even need a tape recorder anymore. Our phones and our social media profiles will do a great job of reminding us of every word that we have uttered, uh, which is also terrifying. But notice that Jesus references a very specific kind of speech here. He says, we will give account for every careless word we speak. Uh Uh-oh. What does that mean? What words is he talking about there? Friends, those are the ones that slip out so easily. The ones we speak when we lose our temper. The ones we speak when we think no one is listening. When we're tired. When we want to complain. When we want to cut someone down and not think twice about it. When we want to pass along the latest bit of gossip that we've heard. They are the ones that come so easily because we never even think about them. And that's what makes them at the same time so dangerous and so revealing. Dangerous because we don't think about them. Revealing because the reason we don't think about them is they are simply an overflow of what's already in our hearts. You know, there's a reason that James 3 warns us that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, and with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, which, by the way, is everyone. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Oh, God, guard our hearts and our words. We desperately need his help for these things. Now, before we move on, let me say one more time, Jesus' point here is not to try to make your fruit, your mouth, your words good enough to justify yourself before God. You can't do that. Rather, it is to recognize that these things are an overflow of the tree. They are an overflow of our heart. And that's a reality from which we cannot hide, from which we cannot escape. 
So the Pharisees here needed to recognize that their words are a reflection of an evil and sinful heart. And for us, Jesus is compelling us to examine our outward fruit, to see what it reveals of our hearts. And what do we do if they reveal evil? What do we do if it reveals unrepentant sin? Well, I want us to sit with the weight of that for a little longer, but know that hope is coming in the end. Before we get there, though, let's consider our second point in verses 38 through 45, the greater one. The greater one. So this, this follows on sometime later. Scholars are torn if this was right after this past argument or if there's some time, but either way, it's, it's coming after what we've just been talking about there. And we, we see the scribes and Pharisees respond to Jesus by saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, on the face of it, that seems like a fairly innocuous request, nothing wrong with that. And yet Jesus responds by saying this to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, why the harsh response there? Because just in the last four chapters, he has healed people of all manner of diseases and injuries. He's cast out many, many demons. He's even raised a girl from the dead. And yet, for some reason, that's not enough for them. Once again, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they're trying to see if they can tame and control this power of his, if they can they use it to their ends. But of course, that's not Jesus's purpose in doing this. I once heard a pastor describe God's omnipotence, his power, like this, as God can do anything he wants, but he will not do stupid things for your personal amusement. A bit crude, perhaps, but fair. It, Jesus is not here to perform parlor tricks for them, but he will ultimately give them a sign, just not the one for which they are looking, because he told them, they will be given the sign of Jonah. And he explains that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We know, of course, that he's referring back to his death and resurrection. Though the Pharisees don't yet know that. And we will come back to that. One quick aside here. If you're doing the math in your head and you're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus died on a Friday afternoon, you know, Sunday morning, where, where did the three days and three nights come from? Well, great question. Scholars have had a minor kerfuffle over this because scholars don't fight. They kerfuff. That's how they, they work these things out. And if you're curious, I can go into all the detail with you. But short version this morning for our purposes, you just need to know that common Jewish counting practice was to count any part of a day as a separate day. So Jesus dies on a Friday afternoon. He's in the grave all day Saturday, raises Sunday morning, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's where you get the three days, three nights. That would have fit with how they counted the days. So don't let that throw you if you see that there. But back to our main point, Jesus tells them he will give them the sign of Jonah. And he makes a couple of interesting comparisons to Jonah and Solomon. And these events he's referencing, you can find them in the book of Jonah or 1 Kings chapter 10, respectively. We don't have time to revisit them this morning. But Jesus says here that a previous generation heard the preaching of Jonah and they repented. And the queen, of South, the queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And that those generations are going to rise up and condemn the Pharisees' generation because they, the Pharisees, and by the way, us, have something. They have someone far greater than Jonah and Solomon. And, and don't miss the layers of comparison here. Jesus is saying that if these pagans of old, the Ninevites, and the queen of the south, who did not have God's word, who did not have God's messengers, which the Pharisees do have, if they responded favorably to Jonah and Solomon, who, whatever their greatness, are far less than Jesus, then the Pharisees are without excuse for their response 
to him. Now, before we strain a muscle patting ourselves on the back for being better than the Pharisees, let's remember that this side of the cross and with the fullness of God's word available to us to say nothing of the embarrassment of riches that we have in the form of of resources and all that God has given us, we have far less excuse than even the Pharisees for our response to him. We have all that we need to know. He has done all that he can do. But Jesus is not finished. He goes on to illustrate his point about both the fruit and our hearts, as well as the dangerous position in which the Pharisees have placed themselves. Look again at verses 43 through 45 with me. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay, first and perhaps most importantly, it is okay to say, that's weird. What, what, what is that about? Um, and I think, and I hope you do too, that, that everything Jesus says is true. But we need to remember here, he's not giving a lesson on demonology. If you Google for articles on this passage, which to be clear is a terrible idea, do not do that. You could find some really crazy stuff that presses the point far beyond what Jesus is trying to say here. So let's not get hung up on trying to figure out the mechanics of demon possession, where this desert is that restless demons go to hang out, what they have against house cleaning. I don't know. That's not what Jesus was going for. Let's do focus on the point Jesus is making, which is this. If your response to him, to Jesus, and to his work is to think that all that you need to do is clean yourself up a little bit, just try a little harder, then it's actually going to be worse for you. Why? Well, we all know how hard it is to remove something bad from our lives, but it's especially so if you don't replace it with something better, because all you end up doing is focusing on that thing, right? You know, LJ, you pre- he doesn't know this is coming. You preached a few months ago about how much you loved your grandmother's biscuits. Yes, the maker of the one true biscuit was your grandmother. That's right. Now, if I tell you I want you to work really hard not to think about your grandmother's biscuits, what are you thinking about right now? Biscuits. You were all thinking about your grandmother's biscuits. We'd love to have them if we could. But, but if all we do is try hard, I'm not going to think about this. I'm just going to do harder, do better. That's all we're going to fixate on. And, and Jesus is saying that's the tragedy of the Pharisees. He has come to drive out the demons. But rather than embracing him, rather than taking on Jesus' easy yoke and his light burden that he mentioned in chapter 11, the Pharisees have rejected the only hope they had. And now it's going to be even worse. Their burden that much greater because that's all they've got left is themselves. And that's not enough. And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. For as great as Jonah's preaching must have been to bring about the repentance of the Ninevites, and for as great as Solomon's wisdom must have been to bring the queen of the south from the ends of the earth, Jesus is infinitely greater than than all of them. And his life His death, his resurrection are the only sign the Pharisees or that we need. They are the power and the hope to which we must cling. And we're going to see that even more clearly in our final point, the true family. The true family. Look once more at verses 46 and 48. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? 
And who are my brothers? Now, if you're using the ESV or the NASB, you'll see a little footnote that points out that some manuscripts insert another sentence between those two, and the King James and NIV will, will treat that as verse 47. Whether or not that sentence is authentic doesn't really matter for us. Uh, it's there. You can see it. But for our purposes today, what is important, what is massively important is his answer to that question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And before we answer it, note that he makes a distinction between his biological family and his disciples. We, want, we have to remember that at this point, Scripture has not given us warrant to know with certainty what his biological family believed about him. They're still wrestling with these things. But you know what? This is really great news for us. Why? Because Jesus is saying that his true family, it's not those who are related to him by blood. He's not coming to establish a Christian aristocracy. No, the kingdom invitation that he gives is far, far broader than that. Because look at how he answers his own question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It says he stretches out his hand toward his disciples and says, here are my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, brother and sister and mother. And there it is, friends. There's the hope for which we and all creation have been waiting what is that? That Jesus' true family, it's not those of noble birth or of high social station. No, what unites us above all is himself. That those who do his will are his true mother and brothers and sisters. And what is, what is his will that he desires us to do? Well, we considered that a few months ago in the Sermon on the Mount when we saw that Jesus says, doing the will and the work of the Father is believing in him, in Jesus, the one whom the Father sent. And that's the message he's been proclaiming throughout and will continue to proclaim throughout the book of Matthew. Repent and believe in him, for his kingdom is at hand. He's not the devil. He's not doing this by the power of the devil. He is the son of God. He is the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. He is the one who makes the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear and the dead to life and who preaches good news to the poor. He is the one who came to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, the one who will not break the bruised reed, the one who will not quench the burning wick, who will, he will bring justice to victory. He is the one in whom we can hope. And as we conclude this morning, I want you to remember and take these three things with you. First, take seriously what Jesus has said here. Do examine your words. Do examine your life to see what they say about your heart. And here's the good news. If they reveal evil, if they reveal unrepentant sin, don't be like the Pharisees and rebel against Jesus. Don't run away from him and try to just clean yourself up on the outside. Take your heart to Jesus to be made new by him. That is his invitation to us all. Number two, do not be surprised when opposition arises against Jesus' kingdom, whether in your own heart or in the world around you. But do remember that though all the forces of hell be arrayed against him, he is greater. He is greater. And then number three, cling tightly to Jesus. Run to him. Find your hope in him. Repent and believe that his shed blood on the cross is where forgiveness is found and is what makes us part of his true family. If, if there is hurt or grief 
or pain and weariness in your life, remember that Jesus is greater. Even, especially when it hurts. Because in saying he's greater, doesn't mean that it's always going to feel good. But he says, I'm with you. That's how he's going to close this book in many, many months when we get there. I am with you forever and will not leave you. If there is darkness and death in your life that will not lift, if there is sin that seems like it will never be defeated, then remember, friends, Jesus has already won in every possible way. He is greater. Let's pray. Father, you are you are greater. And we are reminded again of that this morning. And yet, I know, and we know that there are so many times when that is very, very hard to see. It's hard to believe. And yet, you promise over and over and over again to show yourself to us, to prove yourself to us. And I pray that you would be pleased to do so again today. Once more, if there are any here who don't yet know you in this way, who have not yet seen and marveled at and beheld your greatness, reveal that to them. Bring their dead heart to life. And even if we have, sometimes the weight of this life can make that even harder to trust. So I pray that you would help us to do so, that you would help us to, to love and to sharpen and to encourage one another, to point one another to you, to carry one another to you. It is again in your son's name and by your spirit's power that we pray, that we plead for these things. Amen.